Hello and welcome to episode 102 of the In Squash podcast. I'm your host, Jerry Gibson. I hope your squash is going well. Uh, the season's just around the corner for many of us. I uh, generally uh, think the club play our season or, or the national uh, squash season generally uh, starts around the end of September, early October. And I think it's a, probably a good time to have these guys on, uh, the guys from Squash Skills we had uh, Jesse and Gary on about this time last year, and they've done it again, uh, stepped up again for us this uh, year as well. Jesse Engelbrick and Gary Nesbitt. Uh, if you listen to episode 48, uh, if you haven't listened to it, you should go back and, and give it a listen. And, um, and then also uh, with this one, it's really, really uh, good. A lot of great uh, information. It's m- mostly uh, aimed towards the, the club level player. Um, Jesse, as many of you know, is a <clears throat> is a brilliant mind on, on the squash uh, technical side of things. Uh, just go into Squash Skills and watch uh, the stuff that he's put up on there. There, there's so many, uh, so so much great content there. Uh, I think the the latest uh, videos that he has, or the the latest content, has to do with. Uh, effectively digging balls out of the back corners and how to do that efficiently well today uh, we don't necessarily talk too much about that but uh, we talk quite a bit about several other things including the mental game Uh, both Gary and Jesse get into that we have a a pretty deep discussion about that how to win those big points and if that's a skill or not that that uh, kind of topic that that uh, issue came up with uh, Martin Heath on my uh, last podcast and I, I thought I'd bring it up and see what they had to say about the issue and we have a nice discussion on that. Uh, Jesse in particular uh, we have a great discussion on uh, the keys to following the ball and watching the ball when it's behind you and, and how to do that uh, properly. It's not necessarily all about following the ball and keeping your eye on the ball per se so we get into quite a a great discussion about that and then Gary of course uh, as you know the the resident guru uh, strength and conditioning guru for squash skills and uh, he was great as well Um, one uh, thing in particular we talk about uh, at length is uh, injury prevention Uh, we discuss the adductor uh, injury which is uh, commonplace these days and uh, how to prevent that injury and just uh, quite a bit about also where you should be in terms uh, of your squash uh, conditioning and and that aspect of your training right now with the season uh, just around the corner Uh, so I hope everyone uh, uh, you're going to find this uh, a lot of great value in this as we lead, uh, as we head into uh, the squash season coming up in uh, late September, early October. You're going to enjoy this one. Jesse Engelbrick and Gary Nesbitt of Squash Skills on episode 102. Hello. Hello. Hello, hello Gary, Jesse. Gary, how's it? Are you well? Hey, how are you? Good, thanks. Uh, this is Jesse, just in case you couldn't tell. Uh, maybe, maybe the accent was a good I got way. the accent. I know the accent quite well. Um, a, a few <laughs> colleagues from, from your part of the world, so uh, I know it quite well. Oh, nice. In fact, nice. Uh, two, two, say, uh, two members of my golf club are from your family, the Engelbrecht uh, family. No ways, really. Uh, well, I don't Rita, see Rita and um, Rita, and I forget the, the, the husband's name, but uh, yeah, she's actually... Uh, three or six time club champion. Glad to hell. She's a must, there must be some good genes she's got there, I reckon. Eh? The Engelbrecht yeah. genes are running short. I reckon, yeah. Harry's uh, <laughs> in. Uh, I don't know if he can hear us, though. He's probably, yeah, I see, I see his, uh, he, he's in, but maybe he's uh, having okay. his uh, audio. So, uh, yeah, everything all, uh, all good? You, you guys have. Uh, yeah. Well, there's Gary's in twice now. <laughs> oh, right. This could, this could be fun. Double, doubling up for Gary. I feel I left out of it. Doodling Gary's, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Let's see if he figures this out. He was trying to write something in Facebook Messenger a moment ago by the looks of it. Okay. Hello, can you hear me? Hey, Gary. You got me now? I got you. Can, Jesse, can you hear Gary? I can hear Gary. I, I heard his dulcet tones about an hour ago. So oh, we've, uh, we've just finished sick, running a summer camp. Sick yeah. to death of South African accents today, I tell you. <laughs> <laughs> I was just complimenting him uh, him on it, but uh, yeah, I know what you mean. <laughs> I understand every every sort of third word of his. I understand the rest is just a jumble. <laughs> I can't make it out. Yeah, yeah. brilliant. 
Oh, there we go. I hope, you, I hope you're recording this because this is this is gold. <laughs> okay. Yeah, it is. Uh, yeah. Uh, Brilliant. Before we get started, uh, uh, by way of introduction, uh, uh, firstly, before we get started, I just want to say uh, thanks to both of you for uh, agreeing to come on. It's uh, one of the uh, a lot of a lot of the listeners that I have there. They request this kind of thing, and, and particularly uh, asked me to see if I could get you guys on again. So I uh, really appreciate awesome. it. Uh, for those uh, for for everyone who, who may not be familiar with both of you, I'll just by way of bio, uh, Jesse Engelbrick, uh, former PSA touring pro, and uh, I believe you represented uh, Zimbabwe at the twenty or two thousand two Commonwealth Games. He's doing some great work uh, with uh, squash skills on the coaching side of things, and I believe you also have your own uh, squash academy. So Jesse, uh, thanks for coming on. Pleasure. Thanks. Thanks for having me, Gary. And yeah, I look forward to having our second chat. Absolutely. And uh, also Gary Nesbitt, who uh, who we all know as Squash Skills uh, resident strength and uh, conditioning guru. He also played on the on the PSA tour and is currently working uh, with a few uh, PSA players, including uh, Hisham uh, Mazin. Uh, along, I think you've also worked with uh, Allison Waters and Ben Coleman, as well as uh, my UAE friend uh, Abel Macbul. Uh, yeah, remember the deal for a few years since I worked with him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He he could use some fitness right about now. I think <laughs> I'll tell him. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, Gary, yeah, appreciate it. This is your third appearance on the podcast, by the way. That's right. Yeah, yeah. Second time with Jesse, and we did one solo a couple of months ago, didn't we? Yeah, yeah. Way back in the yeah, back in the early days. Yeah. I'm I'm over a hundred episodes now. So. Uh, oh wow. Yeah. Well. Amazing. Nice. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, guys, uh, first of all, before we uh, get into the you know, the coaching side, the technical and the strength and the conditioning side, I know you're both uh, busy uh, with squash skills, squash skills camps and your own stuff going on. So firstly, uh, Jesse, you've been working, uh, as I know, and as you mentioned to me yesterday, you, you've been working with Allison Waters and uh, Tom Richards quite uh, or of late. And um, I spoke to Tom. He was on uh, my podcast a, w- a little while back. And uh, it was in the middle of the season, I think, and he really seemed to be yeah. in a good spot with his squash. So um, uh, how, uh, have you spent much time with him over the summer and how are things going uh, with, uh, in that regard with Allison and uh, with Tom? Yeah, no, uh, great. And, and it was great listening to that podcast. Tom, uh, Tom, Tom said some pretty nice things about me, which I was surprised with because uh, yeah, I tend <laughs> to uh, put him through his face. Quite, quite often and I'm always uh, cracking the whip and asking him to be better in that but uh, no good we've um, so how it kind of went the season you know naturally comes to a close you know Easterish time uh, Alison and Tom both had uh, about maybe three or four weeks off and then we both got together before we started our summer training to uh, look back and reflect on the season to uh, look at some highs and lows to uh, analyze parts of the game that they thought had progressed to then have a look at other players and go, right, other players are doing X, Y, and Z, and how can we either match what they're doing or how can we douse those fires that they're bringing? So, mm. yeah, we both set down quite a nice blueprint. I think that's what, I, what we've been calling it this summer is, you know, the blueprint for, for the training for the summer. And then, you know, a lot of it's based on, on the game plan at the moment. You know, I think they, they both have their strength and conditioning work that they do quite a lot. And I suppose what I'm trying to do with them is, is, is get inside their, their heads a little bit. You know, the, like, why, why are you playing that shot and, and the tactics behind it and, and the reasons behind it all. So, you know, I think it's, it's looking at Tom first. Uh, he was relatively happy with the season just just gone. You know, I think there was maybe one small blip in the season where where mm. towards the end he didn't as well as he thought. But generally, he was taking scalps of the players above him. He was then pushing the players in the in the top ten and you know competing on court with them. And you know, we just discussed it. it's the fine margins of taking the ball in short. You know, he felt he could compete with those guys physically, the pace of the game, um, you know, the, the actual the basics. But he said when he felt he took the ball in short. You know, we're talking an, an inch the wrong way, just clipping the sidewall before the floorboards. And the fast players, Sarah Gosal comes to mind, and Tarek Moman would actually get onto it as an attacking shot and then completely put the rally back uh, on him and put him under pressure. So right, the right. big blueprint we're working on in the summer is really embracing the short game, really looking to take it in a lot more aggressively short, but becoming almost obsessed with not hitting the sidewall, with really getting that ball onto the floorboards and even along the lines of start looser and then get tighter in a way. And right. um, yeah, it's been, been, been an interesting challenge throughout the summer to 
to kind of reframe that short game a little bit rather than going for the, the Hollywood route, I'm going to, I'm going to catch the Nick and, you know, really make it look like a shot of the month going along the lines of, I'm going to lock down the opponents a lot more. So mm-hmm. that, that, that's been a great, um, you know, few weeks with Tom, like, like everything's been revolved around the, the short game in, in all honesty, you know, I think, I think a lot of the other parts of the game are good. So yeah. He seems, uh, he seems quite fit. Doesn't he? I mean, he, he's very, He's very fit, isn't he? I mean, he he never seems yeah, to he, to get tired. He, yeah, yeah he, he takes his shirt off sometimes, and I, I look at him quite jealously. He's got he's got like a massive a broad shoulders. He's got a good chest on him, and physically, like I'll put him through a big old pressure session, and by the end, he's saying, "Well, bring bring it on. I want a bit more." So I think the physical benchmark we're, we're ticking quite a lot of boxes there. You know, I think we're talking. He's what he's flirting in the top twenty at the moment. You know, I think maybe he'll twenty two in the world. You know, to get to that top sixteen, we're talking. You know. Uh, an inch to the left and right when he's taking the ball in short believes that will get him into the top 16 so yeah it's been it's been uh, hopefully watch the space because <laughs> yeah. you know it, it could go all pear-shaped in this tournament so now we might have to start again but yeah. it's, it's really good yeah as you mentioned I mean uh, last season he played he had some great uh, some some really good results I think it was right around the time of our of the podcast and then he I think it was against Sorov uh, it might have been against Sorov when he, he kind of lost uh, uh, he yeah, a matter, and then he took the wind, a bit of wind out of his sails. But uh, he's seen. I mean, Correct. it bodes yeah. well. Uh, I think if he can play to the to the potential that he he played earlier yeah. in the season. And 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 mentally, we we talked a lot about uh, stuff like mental freshness and mental sharpness. And you know, I think think we're trying to balance his training with that mental sharpness because even if he feels like he's not been on court as long, if he's going on court more mentally fresh. That that's actually a big determining factor for the season because I think at some point we might have got a little bit bogged down with with mental fatigue throughout the course of the season. So yeah. a big challenge is to keep that mental mental freshness. Uh, you know, running into like the February March time, which which a lot of players can get a bit mentally fatigued around about then. Well, I've got some uh, some questions on the mental aspect of the game. I'll save those for later. I'd like to to get to Gary here though because he's been he's working with uh, I'd say one of the more mercurial uh, talents on the tour. I mean, this guy is a one of the guys you want to watch is uh, anytime he's playing Muzan uh, uh, Hashem and uh, Gary. When did you uh, start working with him? And I guess uh, I mean he had some injury issues there uh, for for a while. He seemed to have uh, recovered a bit. And is that uh, basically uh, how you came on board to help him uh, overcome uh, those issues? Yeah, I started working with Muzan towards the beginning of, of last season. Um, I'd worked with a couple of Egyptian players in the past and with Mohamed Redar actually put me on to, to Mazan. Mazan was struggling with, with his scoring injury. Um, so yeah, you know, last season was really just a, a building project, just trying to get the foundations, you know, get his sort of base level of conditioning back up. Um, and yeah, just, just sort of try and strengthen up the areas that had been damaged from when he had the, the injury issues. Mm. And uh, what's it been like working with, with him? I mean, uh, he, seem, he seems like quite the character. I mean, on, on court anyways, he, he's very unpredictable, but very, you know, he's got a great basic game as well, but uh, he can just put the ball away from anywhere. What sorts, of, yeah. um, what sorts of things do you work on with him aside from, I guess, uh, trying to help him overcome come that, uh, the groin injury there? I think, you know, Mazan's a good example of a player that has had injury issues. But I think any player that you work with, there needs to be a foundation first. I think as a strength and conditioning coach, your first priority when you work with a player is to keep them on the court. You know, my primary goal with, with any player that I work with is, is to avoid injury. Um, you know, we want to talk about performance enhancement, getting stronger, faster, more powerful, fitter. But actually just being strong enough to withstand a season of, you know, PSA World Tour squash, it's a... A brutal, brutal sport. So any any player, you know, whether it's someone that's had injury issues in the past or not, first and foremost, he's getting a good base of strength and you know a good foundation of conditioning. Once you move on from there, then you know every player is going to have different elements of their game that they want to to develop and work on. Someone like Mazan, because of the way he plays, he needs to be very fast because he's mm. you know getting onto the ball very quick. He's holding, so that movement onto the ball needs to be very quick. And again, the way he plays, um, he's going to open the court up quite regularly. So when the court is opened up, he then needs to be able to move fast enough to cover any shot he puts in that isn't an outright winner. So, yeah, I think every player you work with has, you know, unique elements that you're trying to develop. But there's always going to be that base foundation of strength um, and everything else is, is built on top of that. 
Yeah, is he uh, as a result of the way he plays? Perhaps he's more susceptible to to those types of injuries. Is that kind of what you're you're saying? Or? No, not necessarily. I mean, every player, the, the the movements. You know, there was no. Um, it wasn't Mazan's style that caused him to, to 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 be injured. It was just, I think, bad luck. It was an overuse injury. He had a bit of an issue with the um, the the operation he had. Um, so yeah, you know, in, any player that you work with, it's it's just building that base first uh, and then moving on on top of that. So someone like Mazan, as I said, has quite unique demands because of the way he plays. It's quite a you know, unique style. The programs that are put together for him are, are going to be very differently focused to, to sort of maybe the English players that I'm working with that have got a perhaps more traditional style. Yeah, he, uh, I know in squash TV, uh, as, uh, as Joe and, and, and the other guys tend to do, they, they, they identify uh, something to... Uh, sort of uh, poke fun at and they they, they always seem to, to look at his uh, his thighs he's got huge uh, huge legs apparently yeah it's funny people say that I, th I think that's more of an aesthetic thing I mean you know Madan Strong he's got a good you know worked a lot on sort of basic compound lifting squatting and deadlifting and, and the sort of basics um, but yeah I think the quads are more of a more of an, a, a genetic appearance thing than, than any you know <laughs> a bit of a stretch <laughs> yeah we don't, we don't do too much power lifting with him it's not like he's uh, going to be Leaving squash for for bodybuilding anytime soon. It's just so, there. so is it one of those cases maybe with with, with Mezan that that he, uh, I mean, with the talent that he obviously has with the racket, is is he should could he be a little bit fitter or a little bit stronger? Yeah, I mean, he's he's had to cover up his physical. You know, this has been going on for a few years now. It was only towards the end of last season that we really started getting back towards one hundred percent. So I think this season, though, he's in a good position now. He finished last season really well. And now this season, you know, looking to push on. And, yeah, he's, he, he, I was over in Egypt earlier in the summer. And Mazan actually just left yesterday. He stayed over here with me for a week. So we've been doing a lot of work together. Uh, so there's a few other Egyptians that, that I was working with. Shahab Essam, Menanassia, did a bit with uh, Zaina Makawi as well. So, yeah, okay. I've been really sort of working with, with those guys. And, yeah, as I said, it's, it's a, a slightly different uh, format, a different kind of, uh, schedule that they have compared to what maybe the European players have and, and that's been kind of one of the, the unique challenges of it. Right on. Now, um, now I've got uh, for, for Jesse, um, I've noticed, uh, I think it was a while back, Jesse, uh, that you, mm. uh, or, or at least uh, uh, lately, maybe generally on squash skills, there, there's been a lot of uh, stuff aimed at uh, the, the club player. And uh, that there's been, I think there's plenty of content on squash skills, which is fantastic. Uh, just like to get your your estimation though on what do you with with the experience you have and and obviously talking with other coaches uh, what what would you what do you think are the uh, three most common mistakes made by uh, by the club level player? Yeah, it's, it's it's I suppose I'm lucky enough to to work with a full range of players. You know, I, I run a club and a university section, so yeah, I'm lucky enough to see those players. And uh, just going back to your squash field thing, I think yeah, the, the the site we're conscious that we want to make it quite um, I suppose community based and and getting uh, more people obviously playing, but actually feeling a part of a community. So it's actually, I think at the moment, the site is evolving a bit and it's, it's great to be a part of that. And, and Gary and I are actually um, with Jethro kind of driving that forward. But going to your question about the three common faults uh, at a club player, uh, I think I, I did a bunch of videos about this uh, back in the back in the day, uh, maybe a couple of years ago. And I think the first one and the one that resonated a lot for me was um, the 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 lack of variation of pace uh, with mm. club players. I tend to see club players, you know, get on court and and stick to one type of pace. Um, and it is it's, it's the general right. Oh, I've I've learned how to hit the ball well. And guess what? All I'm doing is I'm going to be clobbering this ball and trying to beat, beat my opponent <laughs> by, by thrashing it about. And yeah. as, as soon as you get a little bit of subtlety, and I'm, I'm literally just talking about one shot, as soon as you get a club player to develop maybe a lob or, or a slight hold on a shot, it, it just transforms everything they're bringing into it. So for me, that, that one sits at the top of the shelf, if I'm honest. It's so a variation of shots. Uh, yeah, a variation of pace, if I'm honest. Very sorry, pace, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So you can play the same drive, but in maybe three or four different ways. Uh, mm -hmm. and, and that's the big thing I'm challenging the players, you know, the club players that I, I see to, to work with. And, you know, you get them to hit the ball clean to start, but the variation of pace. I think a very then close link to that and, and one that the videos worked or, or resonated well with players was the lack of, of chipping the ball from the back. You know, I think I, I see club players get into the back and the opponent's on the tee and the club player almost feels like, well, I can, I can have a bit of a shock tactic and whack this ball past my opponent 
from the back. But as soon as as soon as I I suppose see a player chipping from the back and and opening their racket face and hitting under the ball and yeah basically chipping that for me changes the whole context from the back of the court because a lot of club players yeah from the back again use a one style method so I think those two things are linked closely but but they would be first and second and mm. um and the third thing I, I think Gary will be very happy for me to speak about this but it's it's just the general the fitness the 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 paying attention to um, you know, strength and, and a good base and good balance. And, and Gary did a great blog recently about, uh, I think it talked about the balance and the stability working from the ground upwards and, and how you get a strong base because, you know, club players can be okay fitness-wise, but they actually get fit just by playing their mates the whole time. Whereas mm-hmm. I think if a club player could pay more attention to uh, a bit of strength and conditioning, a, a bit of um, an awareness of their base and what their body is doing in each and every shot, I think that's going to unlock so much things for club players. So, yeah, to kind of uh, answer a short question longly, I would say uh, the change of pace is one. uh, The chipping from the back is two. And the third thing would be more attention paid to the the, the strength and the balance and the base in, in club players. Now, now, in terms of change of pace, I think that that's really important. I totally, uh, I'm with you on that one. Now, what would you, like, in, in terms of when to make the changes in pace, is there certain things, are there certain things that a player should look for, like maybe where uh, their opponent is on the tee or, or, or um, how much space they have to, to hit the ball, th- things like that? Sure, I- I think I think it comes a, a layer underneath that to start. I, I personally believe it needs to come in a bit of a practice situation in a whether it's a solo or some pairs or some or some you know just some basic length condition games mm. because it's something that I think the ability to change pace comes from the confidence to change pace. So I believe a player needs to have the skill and the confidence to be able to change pace. And then once they have that skill, it's, it's then going, right, let's put it into the match and let's try it out. And, you know, there's, there's some simple formulas. So if, if we skip forward to, I suppose, your question about when to play it and, 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 and the execution in a match, you know, for me, the very simple one would be, can you, can you nullify someone's hard hitting with a bit of a medium and a slow pace, you know? Mm-hmm. So I think Ali Farag did a great video series, uh, you know, a while back where you talked about kind of hard, medium and soft. And he said, well, if his opponent's playing hard, he will choose to play medium and soft most of the time with the odd hard mix in, of course, but, you know, almost nullifying it. And then on, on the flip side, if someone is playing like more of a slow medium pace, you look to inject the pace, you, you look to prioritize that injection of pace. So for me, as a simple framework, that's a great way to start. And I believe there's, there's way more subtle layers than that. You know, I, I think it's something that, that is, is, a, is an instinctual feeling once you're playing, you know, I suppose high-level players and, and maybe I was lucky enough at some point to get that feeling where it just feels right to put a lob in or it just feels right to get in front and, and really accelerate and whip a ball in. But yeah. it, it's all based on probably a few combinations where you're softening your opponent up with a few slow balls, getting them into the sense of security, oh, it's a bit slow, and then you turn on the burners pretty quickly with them, without them even recognizing that that's coming. So, mm. yeah, I, th- I think there's a few subtle layers in and around that, that change of pace. But for me, it, it needs to start with the confidence and the, the skill level to be able to do it first and foremost. And I think once that's there, players can then start to experiment and find their own comfort zone within changing the pace. Because I think, like, you know, there's nothing worse than trying to play a lob and you play this, like, dust thing in the middle and you're just getting <laughs> eaten for breakfast. Yeah. So, you know, and, and I've experienced it many times and I'm sure loads of club players have. And what tends to happen is then they never play the lob again or they never play a slow ball because they go, oh, well, I try to change the pace, but I've played such a rubber shot. That is no point. So, yeah. you know, it, it needs that, that, that skill acquisition first and foremost, I believe. Yeah, I think uh, and uh, changing pace, especially for the elder statesmen of the game, the guy, you know, like myself, over, over 50, it's such a critical part. Uh, you know, hitting that lob, slowing it down, giving yourself enough time so that when you do um, have that opportunity to to inject a bit of pace, maybe uh, it's at the right time, so so that you're not yeah, under pressure. Quite interesting. I think well, yeah, we we got an email recently from one of a very keen skilled member, and he pretty much said a very similar thing. He said, "Is there a playlist of videos for the the?" I, well, he actually mentioned the overweight player to start, which I thought was quite interesting. So, <laughs> yeah, we, we, we're trying to discover overweight. how to not. Okay. 
or by this yeah, overweight facade, but then it also develops into the, the aging player, like what, what the tactics are around someone who is, you know, getting a little bit older and, you know, doesn't necessarily have the ability to hit, you know, 30 drives down the line and get on to the next five volleys, for example. So, yeah, uh, hopefully, again, watch the space that it, it, it's on the, uh, on, on the big spreadsheet we've got about uh, what videos to, to film next and playlists to try and, and put across to the, the squash field members. Brilliant. And now, Gary, you, you, uh, we were just talking about uh, Maitan's uh, injury and um, one, of, one of the most common injuries, I think, in squash these days, it seems to me, and maybe I'm wrong, but uh, is the adductor uh, injury. I, I've suffered from it a, a little bit lately. Um, and I'm just wondering, also Gregory Galtier, I think before his knee injury, he was, uh, he was down with the adductor injury. So uh, in terms of uh, injury prevention, for that particular injury, what would you recommend uh, with respect to strengthening uh, the area around the adductor? I know it, it, it's probably a lot to do with your hips, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, most squash injuries, certainly a lot of the overuse injuries do occur in and around the hips. So it's, you know, hip flexors, adductors, abductors, glutes, all, all around the area. You know, squash players are very susceptible to those kind of injuries. With the adductors specifically, I mean, I think a lot of um, issues that people have generally is they're just not strong enough in that area. It goes back yeah. to what I said about that foundation of strength. You know, if you're doing big, basic compound movements, squatting and deadlifting and lunging and, you know, building the general strength up around the joints, you know, your key joints in your lower body, your hip, your knees, your ankles, if you're strengthening those joints up, you're going to be far less susceptible to a lot of different injuries. There are certain, you know, trauma injuries when you fall or you twist or you turn you can't really do much about but a lot of the the overuse injuries are occurring because you're putting too much load through a joint or through a muscle that isn't ready to take that load so i think mm. again for, for fear of fear of repeating myself it comes back again to building strength building that that base foundation um and that's the best way to avoid getting those injuries in the first place i think in terms of actually sort of rehabbing if you're finding you are quite weak in and around uh, the adductor areas there isn't just sort of one adductor muscle there's multiple muscles that, that kind mm. of work around there yeah and one exercise you'll see physios prescribe a lot and it's also one we use a lot you know i've worked with, with football teams a lot in the past as well and, and they're quite similar in terms of being susceptible to those kind of injuries and we do a lot of sort of just basic um sort of leg squeezes so even as part of the warm-up getting like a ball or a massage roller just putting it between the knees or the ankles and just squeezing the legs together. So what we call like an isometric hold where you're squeezing the muscles, you're, you're bringing the legs towards each other, holding for sort of five, 10 seconds and then relaxing and just repeating, you know, a couple of sets of that is often a good way to, to strengthen. If it's very, very weak in that area, that's a good starting point uh, and also a good starting point if you're trying to rehab the area as well. Yeah, I, I think with, uh, a lot of that has to do with just the, the sheer pace of the game these days, isn't it? With the lower tin and, you know, the technology and things people are just uh, moving around the court so quickly and, and explosively uh, and as a result uh, the adductor uh, issues uh, surface I think without a doubt I mean the game is a lot faster there's a lot more twisting turning lunging directional um, and as I say you, your whole hip complex is going to be susceptible to, to different injuries there um, I think it's as, as the game has, has got faster I'm not sure that enough players have kind of kept up to speed with the strength and conditioning you know people still concentrate on fitness and they do their endurance they do their ghosting and they do their sort of general stamina work but it's actually um yeah trying to do the more specific uh, direct strengthening work in there as well right right now um now it is summer well summer's almost uh and crazily it's almost finished we're, it's a uh, we're hitting yeah. the end of august here um now i'm just wondering uh, in terms of summer training uh what should uh, what should the club players, I guess, be focusing on during the summer? If it, you know they're regular competitive players, what uh, in terms of strength and conditioning, and their on court uh, technical training? So, in, in other words, what type of summer routine generally uh, generally speaking would work? Uh, we'll start with you, maybe Jesse, on that one. Yeah, it's um, if I'm honest, it's hard to get my club players on court in the summer. I think they've uh, <laughs> they've all disappeared, <laughs> but they're starting start, starting to uh, to get back in now. Right. Um, what I've actually done on a lot of my uh, club nights and and the club player based summer training, uh, we've actually gone a lot into to be honest, it's been pretty physical. If I'm honest, um, it's oh, been quite a bit of shock dose. It's been quite a lot of um, very basic hitting without much. 
uh, I suppose, technical stuff because based Firstly, on I don't necessarily have the exact numbers that I would have in the season, so I kind of I'm, I'm making do with the slightly smaller numbers because of the summer holidays. But yeah, they they've actually part of part of my sadistic side was a bit like, well, let's see how many people I can uh, make not come back the week after by uh, putting them in under some tough sessions. But you know, <laughs> the club players love that they 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 love the getting on, and you know they know there's going to be quite a physical element to the probably the kind of six odd weeks I've been going through with them in the summer training. Right. Um, and yeah, like anywhere between two and four per court, uh, a lot of yeah, shots and a ghost has actually been pretty much our standard session to start every, probably every 30 minutes at the start of a session, we do a shot and a ghost. Yeah. Uh, and and their, their movement, their strength, their, their endurance has increased so much. Um, and actually very simply because they're hitting a lot of balls in very straight lines, you know, we're talking straight volley, straight drop, straight drives. That, that when I put them into match play, they, they're really enjoying that straight line hitting. I think then, you know, as the season is going to start in about October time, early October, I'm going to start to introduce more skill games, more decision-based making games. So, right. you know, and ideally by the time they play their first match in the, in, in the winter season, they, they're going to have a good engine on them because of the shots and it goes. They're going to have the good, I suppose, movement patterns that, that I've been trying to drill most of the summer. If I'm honest, their decision-making is probably going to be on the low end and their execution of their more skillful shots because they wouldn't have actually played a huge amount of matches. So, you know, it's quite interesting to see by Christmas time, you start to see them really coming into their own because it's that combination of they've had a lot of match play, they're understanding the nuances of the game and their physical and their basic straight line hitting in the summer has actually worked really well. So, you know, that, that's been my rough formula this summer and yeah the guys seem to be enjoying it and, and coming back week on week and I, I still don't know why and how they are but <laughs> keep, yeah. keep bringing it on yeah it seems like uh, I mean the, uh, when you see what the pros are doing uh, for example a guy like Simon Rosner he, he's put his uh, stuff up there on YouTube uh, a few times but right. it seems seemingly uh, that's basically what they're doing too um, at, at a much larger scale I mean they're out there uh, doing heavy heavy uh, road work and training and then just on court doing some fundamental stuff throughout yeah, the summer. I think, I think with the pros, obviously, like you said, there, there's probably a lot of more off-court stuff. I think they've got the, the luxury of, you know, the gym, the treadmill, the track, uh, plus some circuits around the court. And if someone like, like Simon, or, you know, is going to maybe fine-tune some technical issues, you know, that, that's probably the time to do it once the, well, during the summertime. Um, so, yeah, if, if I could compare what I've done with Alison and Tom, I've obviously gone into a lot more detail, maybe technically and body position-wise than I necessarily would say the club players because I think I get such a short time with the club players that it's like, well, let's maximize the short time. Let's, let's yeah. hit as many balls as we can in a very simple context and actually just learn through play rather than, you know, giving them real depth of technical knowledge where, you know, I only see them for like an hour and a half a week. You know, you're right. not really going to make a huge impact technically. You can mention something, but you, you, you know, the pro you'd mention that and then they go practice for, you know, probably another 15 hours that week on that one particular topic. So, but yeah, I think there is a correlation, like you mentioned, uh, going on there between the pros and the club players. Yeah. So just for, for the club player, just getting out there and hit, hitting the ball, uh, working on fundamentals uh, uh, is, is the key, basically. And then just try yeah. to be... Fundamentals with, with, a, with a physical edge as well. That, that's yeah. what I've tried to pitch at the Fundamentals so with not, a physical edge. I like that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so hopefully Gary's, Gary's smiling from ear to ear here, me uh, saying that. <laughs> Well, Gary, what, I mean, uh, Gary, in terms of uh, the physical side of it, um, what would you recommend? Uh, let's say a guy like, like me, I, I've got uh, a few hours in the day where I could maybe spend uh, an hour or 45 minutes on court and then another uh, hour or so uh, doing some training. Uh, what would you recommend in terms of the, the physical side of it? Uh, I think in the off season, it's, it's unique in that you've got a chance to, to train. Um, you don't have to worry so much about playing matches and, and the competition sort of level is going to be a bit lower. You can really use that time to focus uh, on, your, on your conditioning, whatever level you're at. I think with amateur players, it's, it's, it's trying to identify what your weakness is. Everyone's going to have an area of the game, an area of sort of physicality that they're lacking in, um, whether it's endurance in terms of how long they can last, whether it's speed in how fast they move, power in terms of acceleration, you know, strength, stability in terms of their, their hold and the lunge. Um, and with professional players, we kind of work through periodized schedule where we try to cover all of those elements and, and build those up to, to kind of get that, that complete athlete. But for the amateur player that perhaps has got less time available and, and obviously is sort of working at a, a different level, 
um, yeah, it's, it's identifying what are your weaker areas, either thinking about it and, you know, being quite subjective with it or putting yourself through some tests. We've, we've got a whole battery of tests on squash skills and there's things you can find online and objectively test, you know, test your endurance, test your speed, test your power, test your strength. Where are your weaknesses? Um, and then you want to focus the bulk of your training on, on those elements. And as I say, pre-season summer is the, the perfect time to make those kind of improvements. Yeah, absolutely. Now, now Gary, I had one, uh, one listener. She wanted to know um, about post, uh, I, no, no, yeah, post-tournament stiffness. I, I guess she's, been, she's suffered, like many of us do, uh, from severe stiffness after, after a tournament, especially if you, I think some clubs might even have two, three matches in, in, in a day. Uh, so yeah. what would you uh, recommend in terms of uh, addressing uh, post-tournament severe uh, stiffness? Uh, what, what's that called? Uh, delayed onset muscle syndrome? Yeah, is that right? Doms, yeah, doms laid on doms. muscle syndrome. Yeah. That's more to do with, yeah, when, when the muscle itself has been worked directly. Um, a lot of players, it's just general fatigue and general tiredness, which, which comes after games and tournaments as well. And I think this is where a lot of players <clears throat> kind of think of things the wrong way around. They, they, they experience that pain, soreness, and right, what do I do now? When actually it's trying to deal with it before it happens. Mm. Um, and one of the key things, you know, a lot of studies have shown that, that warming up properly will reduce the amount of stiffness and, and soreness that you'll experience after. If you're going straight in and then you're playing and you haven't warmed up adequately, there's a lot more strain going through the muscles because the body isn't prepared for it. So your post um, session, your post match stiffness, soreness and fatigue is, is going to be heightened because you didn't prepare your body before you started. Right. Um, and again, it's, you know, it's my, my sort of buzzword I keep going back to, but being stronger as well. If you, if well, Jesse, I think um, I remember you did, a, you did something a, a while back on, I think it might have been a few years ago, on watching the ball and watching your opponent and the, the nuances between uh, the two of those uh, things. When, when, you, when we talk about watching the ball when it's behind you, a lot of the times I think players will just kind of watch the ball and then they, they end up... <laughs> not knowing they end up misreading what's going on. So talk about the nuances yeah. of this and when one, when one should watch the ball and when one should watch the, the body movements uh, of their opponent. Yeah, it's, it's a fascinating uh, subject. And I, I think something that's still being discovered, uh, I've seen some interesting videos on, um, on eye tracking technology and, and, and the difference between, there's actually a big debate, but like uh, central vision or periphery vision, and which is stronger. And you know, with some football uh, goalkeeping coaches, they actually say the peripheral vision is stronger than the central vision. And so, you know, I think the field is still very up for debate. But um, the biggest thing I've heard and, and what, what really interests me, so say you're, you're watching that ball travel down the sidewalk. Say you've had a good straight drive that's relatively high. You know, I think we get the idea that we're watching the ball, but what actually happens in the eyes is you're making loads of millions of little pictures and you'll be actually tracking the ball, you know, anywhere from a foot to a meter in front of where the flight of the ball is currently going. So that, that to me is really interesting in regard to watching the ball, hitting the front wall and going into the back corner, for example. And what that's got me to start to think about and what that's got me to start to, to try to challenge my players is or with is that idea of yes you're watching the ball and you're watching it then bounce in the back and you know you've, you've always got to be locked into the ball but then i believe your your vision or, or your cues and what you should pay attention to should start to then get ahead of that ball again is, is go well if i've been tracking the ball and i've been looking about a foot or a meter in front of that ball while it's lying to the back while, while my opponent is I suppose coming up to strike that ball you know you're probably going to have to start to take your eye off the ball and almost start to look and and go ahead of that point because you know the speed that that ball is going to leave your opponent's strings is 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 accelerating massively and if you're trying to watch that point of the ball leaving your opponent's strings you're, you're going to be late you're not going to be making that decision so yeah, well, you know, for me, anyways, that, that's uh, that's something that I fell, uh, you know, that, that that I would do. I, I in the past, anyways, I, I'd get caught up watching the ball uh, for too long. Yeah, and, yeah. And, yes, and so so with all the will in the world, you hear coaches or, or you tell your own, you know, inner voice, say, "Watch the ball. I'm going to watch the ball. And I'm going to pick up where the ball is going to go." But you know, our, our human eyes aren't able to process the ball leaving the strings. We've got to process it a foot or a meter after that point. But what that gets me onto is that whole idea about, 
you know, also using your periphery, also, also trying to capture as much data as you can mm. without your central vision taking over the whole kind of process where if your central vision is you're so focused and concentrated on your central vision, it, it almost gives you a headache, first of all. But <laughs> I then think you're, you're not picking up fundamental cues and prompts from, again, your opponent's body shape, even, even the angle of their racket face and, and even the, the way they're moving into the ball. You know, I think once you start to trust that you can take your eyes off the ball and almost like look a little bit ahead of that point where, you're, where the contact is, you know, your, your database and your computer and your processing power in your brain, in my opinion, should start to create a bigger picture of where the next bit of information or where that ball is going to go. So yeah, look, I, I I don't know if that's just gobbledygook at the moment, but well, I, I mean, I, I mean, we we could. Around. Is there any way of sort of? I, I don't know if you've thought. I'm sure you have thought of this. It like if you could sort of simplify it, like um, when when is the right time to watch the ball, like, and when is the the right time to uh, watch the other elements of it, the 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 body yeah, language. So, Thanks. Yeah, exactly. So a very simple answer to that. And, and again, I, I think Lee Drew talks about this quite a lot. And, and I respect a lot of the stuff he says. He talks about like your eyes being lenses, when to zoom in and when to zoom out. So, you know, I think, I think when you're watching the walls travel down the wall, you know, that's when you be zoomed into the ball. You know, you're, you're in a, a zoomed in state and you're watching the ball. But as that ball is landing or, or arriving within, say, the vicinity of your opponent, you know, your opponent's getting ready and, and they're moving towards the ball that's where your lenses should start to zoom out, where, where you're looking at the bigger picture. You're, you're starting to pay attention to a lot more factors. And actually, at that point, you're probably not even really looking at the ball, if I'm being honest. You're, you're starting yeah. to analyze your opponent's shape and body. Yeah. And, then, and, and then, for me, it's, it's, it's as your opponent is engaging, as you can see they're putting their body weight into the shot, as that swing is starting, I would then say it's more of a, a zoomed-in factor again but zoomed into that little bit, the point, a little bit in front of the ball or, or, or the anticipation levels or moving forward. So that would be my formula for how to, how to use your eyes as lenses with a, with a zoom in and a zoom out factor. So it's a zoom and in, a zoom out, again. zoom in. Yeah, pretty much. That that look and, and if I'm honest, in the heat of battle, that's nearly impossible to analyze in your brain. But <laughs> yeah. you know, if if we're yeah. talking about maybe just maybe just in rolling drives with simple formats, but I think that's they, they did some studies on and, and they did eye tracking on, on Cristiano Ronaldo and, and Gary's seen me show this video at the camps before. And you know, what he's paying attention to, his eyes are are darting around to the angles of the, the, the knee joint in his player and the hip angle and then the space next to the player and then the space between the players but it's really pinpoint and when Ronaldo got asked about it he said I don't really know what I'm looking at but it just makes all sense he's it's like he's reading a book and all the words are in front of him on the book whereas maybe a club player that's just zoomed in on the ball all you've got is random words on a page it's just it's all scattered across right, the page right. and none of the words make any sense but if you have that ability to zoom out you, you, you you're going to start to create sentences and paragraphs in that situation, which should give you the answer to, or part of the answer to where that ball is going to start to end up. So yeah, that, that, that's the way I think I, I look at it is, 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 is how you're using the zoom in, zoom out, zoom in tactic, but right. in a, a, a simpler form than that, if, if you can kind of break it down simpler. Well, I think there's a lot to that. For me personally, I, I mean, I, I think it was a while back when I, I did know, I, I don't know if it was squash skills, but I did read something or see something and I started to experiment with it myself. And I found that, uh, I zoomed in when I would zoom in on the ball, I could figure out, okay, these are basically his options. And then when I kind of zoomed out and sort of looked a little bit more at the body language, then I knew exactly, yeah. sort of almost exactly where the next shot was going to go. So yeah, yeah. Like, almost like a process of elimination because the quality of your shot will determine his, you know, his lack of options. If it's a good quality shot, he should be limited to maybe three shots. And then when, like you said, you start paying attention to the body and if he's got a you know, big wound up swing, you're going to go, well, he's only really going to play a straight drive from that position. You can yeah. start to edge across and, and, and be looking for that. So yeah, in regards to the, the, the information in the ball and your quality of shot, and then pretty soon after that, the information in your opponent and the way they're shaping up for their shot, you know, you, you try and combine those two things quickly in a, you know, an artificial intelligence sort of way. You know, you should hopefully start to create, you know, the said responses for that situation. Absolutely. And then, sorry, quite, Gary, yeah. 
quite interesting to, to, to add in there as well, just in line with what you're saying. A lot of studies have shown that, that when, you know, when you're anxious, when your adrenaline rises, so especially when you're in a competitive match, you, you lose a lot of your peripheral vision. You kind of, the blinkers almost come on and your focus becomes very narrow. Mm. But a lot of players do struggle with that whole element in a competition sense because of that, because of that kind of tension that's going through their body. So that, that idea of kind of seeing everything and being aware of everything becomes a lot harder for a lot of people yeah, um, yeah. when they're yeah. playing in competitive environments. I think that's, that's really, yeah, that's a good point. Uh, I mean, you get on court, you get all, uh, you, you get a little bit tense or you get a bit, uh, uh, maybe you're too upright or you're not relaxed enough. And then, yeah, yeah exactly. How can you overcome that? I mean, that's a whole other conversation about, you know, dealing with nerves, <laughs> dealing with stress. I mean, there's a lot of things. Yeah. Well, one, of the, one of the, you know, easiest answers to give and something that, that works for a lot of people is just breathing exercises, learning to breathe on court. You, you go on court and you, you tense up and, and you start to hold your breath and then that's where everything starts to stiffen and it's a domino effect physiologically, you know, in terms of the visual, in terms of the mental, psychological, everything kind of starts to collapse. Whereas if you just slow the breathing down, try and take a little bit of time between each point, just to reset yourself. Um, as I say, sports psychology and, and dealing with nerves and anxiety is a huge topic, but a lot of the recommendations you'll get boils down to, you know, good breathing techniques. Mm. Well, um, I just got, got a couple of more uh, questions. Um, and this last, this next one came up in, uh, I had Martin Heath on uh, just recently. And as you know, he's working with the Canadian um, national team and he's the elite performance coach there. And uh, the girls, Canadian girls, have had a uh, uh, really good uh, past few years. I think three of them are in the top uh, 40 in the world right now, which has never happened before. But uh, this season in particular, they had, I think, both Sam Cornett and I think all three, Danielle Letourneau and uh, Holly Naughton, they all had opportunities to beat players, I think, in the top 15. They maybe had match balls and things like that. But when it came to those match points, uh, they weren't able to, able to uh, capitalize. And Martin was saying uh, that it had a lot, you know, obviously this is a mental toughness thing. Uh, or, and he, we were talking about that. I'm just wondering, is, is there any way of, uh, of sort of coaching this? Uh, kind of coaching players to, in, the, in those moments, in those really at the critical points against players may be better than you uh, if you've got a situation where you can actually where you're in a match ball situation or can put a guy away but you don't uh, is there something you can do to coach that or or is that just uh, something that that these top players have and others don't I think it's it's something that um, you know it's, it's all part of, of becoming a, a better player but certainly I mean I do a little bit of sports psychology work with some of the players that, that I deal with on, on kind of a, a lesser scale, but we talk a lot about really nailing the process. So whatever mm. point of the game you're in, whatever environment you're in, whatever's happening, your focus isn't on the outcome. It's not on the winning the point. It's on the process of playing the rally. What do I need to do to play this rally? Where do I need to put the ball? And it's, it's trying to change the focus away from the outcome of, oh God, I'm a match ball up. I can win a match here. To thinking, right, where do I need to put the ball? What, what is my process? What have I practiced? What have I trained? Um, and that can be a tough thing to, to implement in the game. And I think it comes back to trying to practice that in your training as well. Jesse and I spoke uh, on, on a camp we were doing the other day um, about sometimes trying to pressurise a training session. So adding different elements in. I'm sure Jesse can expand upon it. But just talking about you know, what, what can you do as a coach with your players to, to add a little bit of additional pressure in training? It could be something silly like, right, you know, the loser has to buy the coffees or... It could be something like inviting one of your partners. So maybe your partner or a member of your family has never seen you play. Invite them to come and watch you. So there's that little bit more pressure. It's, you're never going to be able to replicate the World Open final. No. I think a lot of training environments are, are too sterile. It's too easy. It's too relaxed. When actually putting yourself under a little bit of pressure in training. We actually did a, a, a mental toughness article on squash balls I put together. Uh, I'm not sure, a couple of years ago now. But if, if you search for that online, we actually looked. Mm. And, so uh, what, what is it called again, Gary? Uh, mental toughness for squash, I think was the title. Okay. Of it. So if you search mental yeah. toughness, it got it got republished again maybe last week because I remember reading it last yeah. week. I think. Oh it's, really? Yeah, it's a really really good article. It's yeah yeah fantastic work in there. But no, just picking up what what Gary said again, man. It's um, 
you know, mental toughness. It's well, funny, funny you mentioned. I've, I've actually just I uh, submitted a, a master's research project on mental toughness in squash about a month ago. So uh, okay, it's currently being marked, and yeah, we'll see how that goes. But um, yeah, and I was lucky <laughs> enough to uh, to interview a few of the top players around on the subject of. Uh, it started with, with the word of resilience, but it, it turned more into mental toughness. And, um, you know, you're fascinating to hear some of these top players uh, talk about it and their experiences from it. And what I got from it was, was again, linking what Gary said. Um, a lot of the mental toughness, I, well, what it sounded like is two, two big areas. It was the nature-nurture debate, was, was the combination of there's some ingrained bit of mental toughness in these players when they are born, you know, it's, it's mm. that, but what came really closely was, was the environment they were subject to uh, very early on. And, and almost to the point of, um, if I'm honest, like cruelty or, or, or kind of like a really harsh environment, like a, I tried my best, but it still wasn't good enough, it, you know, and, and that maybe links into the, the pressure situation Gary was talking about. And, yeah. you know, some of these players were, were amazing at sharing some of their experiences when they were younger and, and both in regards to their, their, their family and the environment that, you know, so I think for me, great that, you know, the Canadian girls are, are starting to get this, um, you know, the, the inroads in, into the, the higher ranking. It'd be interesting to see, their study because because this study that i did was all based on successful outcomes if that makes sense like like right, going, yeah, right yeah. these are successful athletes but it would actually be good to do a second study on you know that example of going like it sounds harsh to say not successful but you know the one like just separating that next little tier and why they were matchable up and lost you know right. whether i mean obviously uh, to- yeah obviously sam and and uh, holly and uh, those girls they've they've been They've been in situations where they're they're the favorite and they they've got the wins, and they they've had the yes, those exactly, moments yeah. right. So obviously exactly, they they yeah, know, yeah. yeah, yeah. It is fascinating, and then and so so for me, what what a lot of my study came out was was the the early early exposure to that environment and and just then the the continual effect that um that 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 they were exposed to. But it almost felt like it became such a habit at such an early age that. Every, every time they stepped onto court, whether it was in a solo session or, you know, the highest intense World Open final, it wasn't a strange environment to them or, or, or they, they, they were so used to that experience of pressure and, and um, you know, being pushed by their family, being pushed by themselves, that it just, it, it felt second nature to them. So mm-hmm. in regard to the coaching of that, I, I, what, what I got out of the study was going, you know, can can coaches replicate that environment at a young age, but without putting juniors off the sport? Because I think there's a whole debate yeah, on yeah. Yeah. that's that's worked for a very small niche group of people who, you know, a combination of factors. But I can imagine that same environment is being created multiple times over by parents and coaches, but those children no longer play the sport and they've actually been put off the sport. So, you know, I think there's a whole other side of the coin we need to look at about creating that environment where, you know, it's an an accepting environment of pressure and accepting environment of we're trying to create mental toughness, but it it also can't be a a barrier or a a detriment or an environment that's going to turn people off the game. But it, um, yeah, linking what Gary said, I, I think mm. I think having the, that that constant threat of something happening, or whether you you add more points to a certain shot, or if you play another shot, you take away more points. You know, and I've, I've been listening to some interesting podcasts on on how they do that with cricket and decision making, and they said, yeah, you can get pretty close to a match. You're never going to replicate a match, but you can actually train the mental toughness by you know, the environment you're creating, you know, on a, on a weekly, monthly basis for, for your players. Right. Now, uh, is, is it is it possible, though, to, I think uh, what Gary said earlier about uh, just uh, put just going through with the process, is it possible to uh, remove or getting, get people to think of removing the pressure from, from, the, from the situation? Like, you know, you hear, okay, uh, um, 10, 10, 8 match ball, then suddenly you feel, okay, right. th- this is it, right? Um, is there any way yeah. of sort of training uh, players to remove, uh, sort of ignore those types of things and just go ahead and, and play play the game? What do you think, Gary? I've, I've got an opinion, but I want to hear yours first. 
I guess at, at that point, um, you know, the phrase that is often used is, is choking, that, you know, you're yeah. on that finish line and you choke. Um, there's some great books out there, some great literature. It's a topic that I've always been very interested in. There's a book called, literally called Choke by, I believe it's Sean Bellock wrote that, I believe. Um, and also another book called The Pressure Principle, which was by a sports psychologist, uh, the one that worked with Johnny Wilkinson, I think it was. I can't recall his name. Um, if I remember See, he's them, a I'll, rugby player, Johnny Wilkins? Yes, sorry, okay, yeah, yeah, he was rugby. Okay, okay. I'll, I'll tweet out the names of the books and the authors later. It's, it's worth checking those out Perfect. because they're okay. you know, players that I've worked with that have that issue of, of choking. Um, there's some really good stuff in, in those books there. And I think it's, it's a, a topic that's hard for a lot of players to talk about. It's almost one of those kind of embarrassing things that, People don't like to admit that, that kind of mental weakness. Um, so sometimes it's a hard thing for players to address with their coach. You know, the players that I've spoken to about choking tend to only really be the players that I'm very, very close to that have, have got a real sort of trust and, and relationship there. Um, so for a lot of people, it's, it's a difficult thing to, to even admit to themselves. So in right, terms yeah, of sort yeah. of looking to read, you know, there, there's some great books out there. Um, but yeah, it's, it's a shame that more players don't identify that within, within themselves and be a little bit more honest with themselves and, and you know, expose themselves to ways that they might be able to, to better perform in those sort of high pressure environments. Mm. So yeah, like uh, interesting thing I, I've come across recently and, and again, I think a bit of it links to it. Um, this whole idea, of, it's called the prospect theory, um, which is the idea where, where if, you, if you were to kind of you know toss a coin with someone if you used to say you know toss a coin if i when i get a pound if you when you get a pound you know that the whole you know 50 50 kind of vibe and um i believe and again i haven't listened to it for a while or, or read it for a while but the whole idea that that someone is only going to enter that uh, environment if it's a three to one odds on um so basically going toss toss the coin if i lose you get a pound but if i win i get three pounds so you know there's that whole debate and and um, a guy did a real good uh, discussion on that whole risk risk aversion or the fear of losing in a way. So you talk about 10-8 match ball, you know, the fear of losing. And what he's trying to talk about and, and, and put the theory across is, you know, end of the day, it's still the same shot in front of you. Yes, there's the scoreboard yeah. and there's, there, there's a whole bunch of other factors around it. But could you get yourself in this whole, you know, the, 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 try to get rid of that risk of losing factor going, well, it's the same shot and I'm going to, I'm going to play still that squash. Shot. It's still a squash rally. Still, just... Yeah. And that, that's, that's, that's what he's trying to get at. And, and I'm probably yeah. completely hashing what he said about it. I'll, I'll have a look at it and maybe, maybe get a bit of a clear idea again myself. But, you know, and, and I've been talking like that with the, the players and go, listen, over the course of a season, you know, you, you're, you're going to lose a couple of those, those, those points. You're going to be 10-8 match ball down and you're going to play that shot but you're going to lose it but the odds of you executing it successfully you know over the course of a season or the course of a career even more so should be heightened if you go into it with that with that with, without the fear of losing you know you're playing that right. shot you're not you're not you're not now gambling you're actually just backing yourself to go yeah you know what okay i'm, I'm not saying you're going for that cross court nick but if it's that regular straight drop or regular shot you know what, like over the course of the season, back yourself. And if you do it enough times and put yourself in that situation and in a way remove the 10-8 tag, you know, the, the odds are it's going to become in your favor. So that would be one of my ways to, to just chat to a player about it. Go, but also to accept, accept you're going to get it wrong. And, yeah. you know, there's going to, you might get it wrong two or three times in a row, but, you know, the odds are going to start to become in your favor if you believe it in that same way. Yeah, I guess, I guess the difficult thing is in those matches, you, you don't have, I guess coaches really don't have time to, to, uh, to, to tell the players to, to do that because it's in the moment uh, as it's exactly, happening on yeah. the court. But, but, but I, I suppose yeah. it's like Gary says, when you get close to the player, you can have that relationship where they can trust you and you can get into a bit of um, deeper detail that, that, you know, hopefully your voice within reason can be, or you can be on their shoulder with your voice in their ear. Yeah, yeah, you know, no, exactly. That. Yeah. Yeah, perfect. Yeah. Well, guys, uh, I mean, it's been an hour. You've been really great with your time. I just want to give you the opportunity to maybe uh, uh, promote or, or, or uh, whatever you're doing out there now with your squash camps. I know you have a few, uh, few camps going on. Uh, Gary, is there anything? Uh, I guess you're both doing the same thing, uh, working together right now. Yeah, I mean, Jesse, put, uh, we had a camp on this week uh, at St. Albans, uh, a junior camp. We did a camp last week with Mazen Hesham when he was over, so we did a really well, good... Well, I was going to ask, what, what, what's, a, what's a Mazen Hesham camp like? 
You guys, you guys just looking at your long curly locks, right? Say again. You guys just uh, come, looking at each other's nice hair. <laughs> yeah, me and him did like a, a, a seminar on, on hair care topics. Yeah, just yeah, to see yeah, what. Yeah, well, I, I, wasn't, I wasn't that involved in that conversation. So thanks, guys. You, uh, you no, no, I, I'm in the same boat as you, Jesse. So no, no. Hey, I embrace it. I embrace uh, it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I mean, me and Jesse, you've got um, the next thing we'll probably be doing together on a, on a larger scale is we ran a, a really good British Junior Open preparation camp uh, oh, last cool. year, just in the sort of space between Christmas and New Year. So we'll be finalizing dates and, and putting that out in the next couple of days that's in um, the uk is it uh, that'll be in the uk again at, at nuffield st albans um british yeah, junior got, open got, because i mean that's that's global i mean that's huge around the world yeah we, we had a really good session yeah. last year we, we did a two-day two-day camp just just preparing the, the the kids that were getting ready for the tournament we had a few kids from overseas come in as well we did some sort of psychology workshops and tactical stuff so you're not going to improve your your technique and your fitness in, in two days, but we spent a lot, a lot of time on the mental and tactical elements. And yeah, we had some really good feedback from that. So we're looking forward to that. Yeah, the feedback, the feedback was great, wasn't it? I remember some of the parents coming back after the British Junior Open, they were like, my goodness, my, my child was so much calmer and they prepared better and they were yeah. in a mental state. And, and yeah, we, we were super proud of it. And yeah, we yeah. literally today that we need to set the date soon and put it out there. So yeah, that, that's going to be a super cool one to, uh, to get involved. So yeah, any, any overseas Canadian people, you know, please get yourselves over. It'd be great to see some foreigners coming over for that as well. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I mean, squash skills also has quite a glow. I mean, the reach of squash skills is, is global, obviously. Uh, uh, you guys have spent a bit of time uh, uh, around Europe. Is there anything, anything beyond that, uh, that, there's, the there's a camp we're running in, um, in Rhode Island. We're doing um, in conjunction with Peter Nichol with, with the club that he's got there in, uh, okay. in, in Rhode Island with um, Arthur Gaskin, I believe, is there as well. So that would be me, Jethro, Arthur, uh, and possibly Peter. Um, and then Jesse and I, we're doing an Amsterdam camp with James Wilstrop and Malcolm Wilstrop. That's coming up as well. Oh, great. Um, and one, yeah. one, one interesting one that, that, that's just, well, it, it's developing still, but on the 7th and 8th of September, me and Paul Carter, we're doing the first ever um, coach education one for squash skills. So it's not a camp necessarily for uh, players. It's, it's more for coaches. Uh, you know, between me and Paul, we've pulled our resources and gone, actually, do you know what? They're, they're, they seem like quite a big demand from, mm. you know, actually Polish squash coaches, first and foremost, but, but another few coaches around Europe that we've been given a blank canvas to talk about what we believe the most uh, relevant coaching topics are at the moment. So we're super so excited about that. this is a that. seminar, is it? Uh, well, se yeah, well, it's, it's a two-day, yeah, well, you can call it a seminar. Like there, there's going to be a, uh, I don't know if the word is diploma, but there's going to be a certification uh, process for the people who attend. So, you know, like you've got your level one type stuff in England and you've got your level one kind of coaching badge. This we feel is, is, a, is a, an addition. And if I'm being blunt, almost, almost better than that, because we're, we're, we're really using the squash skills database of you know, amazing, you know, videos and content. And with Paul Carter and my experience, we're, we're trying to say, well, we believe this is what the current coaching academia is like and the most impact you can have as coaches. So it could be a whole uh, new squash skills universe opening up and the whole coach education type, type of thing. So yeah, it should be really exciting to be involved with that. That's fantastic. And that's, uh, is that going to be in the UK, uh, Jesse? Uh, or no, did you say Poland? Krakow. Yeah, Krakow in Poland. Yeah. Okay. So, um, okay. And they, 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 they approached us because, man, when we went and did our last camp in Krakow, you know, how many courts was it, Gary? Maybe like nine or ten courts? And yeah, nine, I think that's. Yeah, Is that the that we, World we were, Masters uh, venue? I no, don't I think, think it was that one, was it? No. Okay. But it was crazy because like, like we had finished the camp at like five o'clock and then the guy, you know, people were kicking us off at like Saturday night, five o'clock and the courts were fully booked till about 10.30 that night. Really? <laughs> it, was, it was crazy. <laughs> wow. Yeah, it was, wow. So yeah, they, they, there's, so, there's loads of coaches there and there seems a massive demand and hunger for squash there at the moment. So, you know, it seemed natural to, to run our first ever coach education one in, in Krakow. That's great. Well, well, guys, uh, I just want to say uh, thanks again for coming on and uh, really appreciate all the work you're doing, uh, all, uh, the way you're educating the squash community or uh, the videos you have that, that some of them are free there on squash skills, which is fantastic. And uh, all the best to both of you with, with both of uh, uh, the teams of players that you're working with going forward. 
Thanks, Gary. As, as always, yeah, I've been, uh, been just good to chat for squash for an hour. And, and yeah, Gary and I just, uh, we'll probably, Gary, do you want to stay on and have another hour chat? I reckon we can, can't we? Yeah, but I haven't seen enough of you these last couple of days. <laughs> <laughs> All right, guys. Thank you so much. Cheers, guys. Cheers, Cheers Gary. Well, thanks a lot, Gary and Jesse. Uh, lots there for us to chew on as we head into uh, our respective squash seasons. Really, uh, again, thanks so much to the guys from Squash Skills and also to Jethro and Peter uh, for all that they do. Peter and Jethro, Bins and Peter, uh, Nickel, and the rest of the Squash Skills team, thank you for all that you do uh, to put forth such a great material for all of us. There's such a wealth of material on the website and um, I encourage everyone, anyone who hasn't uh, seen what they have going on i'm sure most of us have uh because it's so, i mean there's so much there that be we'd be foolish not to uh to sign up for the website but uh yeah anyways uh, again thanks jesse and gary for that and uh, also everyone thank you for listening uh we've got uh another two or three episodes uh coming up one after the other i've got uh the, the legendary uh, squ- American squash media guy, uh, he's written several books and has a wealth of knowledge on the American, uh, especially the American pro double scene and the varsity scene. Rob Dinnerman, this will be uh, uh, his third appearance on the podcast. He'll be coming on to talk about uh, the retirement of Damian Mudge and also the uh, the U.S. varsity squash uh, uh, season which is upcoming and, and that should be quite intriguing as well but Rob's always uh, a fountain of, of knowledge when it comes to um, U.S. squash he's uh, forgotten more than I'll ever know about that part of the uh, the squash game and I think just about any part of the squash game he wrote uh, recently uh, wrote the book on uh, Sharif Khan the sheriff of squash I believe it's called so uh, I'm looking forward to that that's coming up this week and also Holly Naughton hopefully we'll have her on uh, later in the week as well so everyone again thanks for listening lots to look forward to here on the podcast and uh, of course most importantly good luck with your squash I'm suffering a bit from uh, strangely a, a little bit of a hip issue which I, which I suffered when I was back in Canada trying to bite off a little too much in terms of the uh, the off-road training uh, starting to uh, come around I played a bit yesterday and uh, doing some uh, injury prevention stuff uh, and also I guess I'll uh, try to follow up on uh, what Gary uh, had mentioned there in terms of uh, adductor issues. It's not really the adductor, it's more of a hip uh, issue. Hopefully it's not too serious. I haven't had it looked at by a a doctor. I don't think uh, it's that serious yet but if uh, if it resurfaces again then I may have to do that but uh, Hopefully nothing like that uh, impeding your progress. Uh, I'll be back uh, to full uh, full steam ahead uh, very soon, I hope. And I hope uh, right now you, all of you are, are ready to have a great season with the upcoming September-October season uh, kickoff just around the corner. So enjoy your squash. Thanks again for listening, and talk to you soon. Goodbye now.